The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together as we open God's Word. And so I want to welcome you if you're watching the live stream or in the overflow room. And if you're here in person as well as we now open God's Word. So turn in your Bibles to keep your spot in First Peter. And then would you join me now as we pray and ask God for help. Father in heaven, my prayer this morning is that in everything Christ would be glorified, that the name of Jesus would be exalted and lifted high. So use the preaching of your word to exalt Christ. Renew our affections to love Jesus more and more and transform us increasingly into the image of your son. Come now in the power of your Holy Spirit and give me grace to speak as one who speaks the very oracles of God so that Christ would get glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two days ago marked the 19th anniversary of September 11th. If you're older than 25 years old, you know exactly where you were and what you were doing when that news came to you. I remember I was living in San Diego at the time, watching the devastation unfold on the TV and then the fighter jets beginning to get ready in San Diego, preparing for the unknown. On that day, there was four coordinated terrorist attacks that resulted in about 3,000 deaths and countless of lives impacted and a nation completely changed. But if you don't remember, the days after the 9-11 attacks were so uncertain. And yet there was this upswell, an uprising of patriotism and unity in the country that was in many ways unprecedented. There was this collective desire to display resiliency and resolve, spontaneous chants of USA at ground zero, or remember George Bush throwing out the first pitch, I think, of one of the World Series games in New York City. And people were warning him not to go out there because of the danger of being shot. And he goes out there and he throws out the first pitch. And there's this rousing ovation and sense of we're in this together. And though the situation and circumstances are very different. That's what Peter's trying to answer this morning. At 9-11, how would America respond to unprecedented trials and challenges? And what Peter's answering for us this morning is, how is the church to respond when it's facing unusual trials and challenges to our faith? When maligning and slander and persecution and suffering come, how are believers to live? How are we to respond to all of the different forces and pressures and stressors that are pressing in on our lives? And last week, we saw that believers are to arm themselves with the mind of Christ when we think about suffering. Because Jesus endured suffering as the pathway to glory. And he knew that there was judgment on the other side. 
And yet we sort of get the other half of that. Not only are we to abstain from the passions of the flesh like the Gentiles, but we are called to magnify Jesus by loving one another within the body of Christ. These very real trials that Peter's readers are facing could cause them to react in one of two ways. They could either conform or compromise, which is what we looked at last week. Don't live like the Gentiles because you're not supposed to be conformed to them. And the other one is to withdraw. Maybe we'll just withdraw from the Christian community because that's the source of the scorn from the people around us. They're seeing that we're gathering with others, worshiping Jesus, not participating in everything that's going on. Maybe I'll just withdraw and so the animosity would diminish. And yet Peter is saying, no, don't withdraw from the Christian community. Just even illustrated in today's cultural context with the surge of violence going on in the Twin Cities, there's a shortage of guns and ammunition because more people are thinking about their safety and protection more than ever. There's a self-focused nature to this. Am I going to be safe? Is my family going to be safe? And what Peter is saying is, don't mainly focus on yourself in days such as this, but rather continue to open yourself up and engage with the body of Christ in loving one another and living together. So our main point in our passage this morning is that believers are to live together and love one another in light of the imminence of Christ's return. Jesus is coming back and that changes everything to how we're supposed to live. So we're to live together and love one another in light of the imminence of Christ's return. There's no time to waste because Jesus is coming. And the aim of this passage is not just changed attitudes and actions, but it's so that Jesus would get glory in the church. And that's a transformative way of thinking about our lives. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. We exist so that Jesus would get glory for himself, not just to make sure we're safe. Now that's important, but so that Jesus would get glory. So our plan is to look at the stunning statement that we get at the beginning of verse 7. And then we get four exhortations, four implications that flow out of this. The four are, we are to think clearly, love fervently, host joyfully, and serve graciously. So, look with me now at the first half of verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. What does Peter mean by this? Very simply, he's saying that we are right now living in the final stage of redemptive history. We are living in the already and not yet of God's kingdom. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died, rose again, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now his kingdom has been inaugurated. We're living in that last time, those last days. And yet it's not fully been consummated because Jesus has not yet come back. So we're living in the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, which is often called the last days. Or here it's highlighted as the end of all things is at hand. 
But you would be right to ask the question, well, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, and he said, the end of all things is at hand, and now 2,000 years later, is that still true? Or was somehow Peter wrong in stating that it's near, that it's soon? Well, Jesus himself taught about the nearness of his kingdom. Mark 1.15 says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come. Repent and believe in the gospel. Or, Peter himself highlights in 2 Peter just how God doesn't think about time the way that we think about time. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So only two days have passed. The point is, Jesus kingdom has begun. It's been inaugurated. He can come back at any time. But in that particular section, it was God's delay is not a delay in the way, in the way that we think about a delay, but rather it's his patience so that more and more people would be able to be ushered in to his kingdom. And so Peter and Jesus are trying to help us understand we're living in the last days, the final stage of redemptive history. In Revelation twenty two twenty, the second to last verse in the entire Bible, Jesus says something similarly. John writes, the Apostle John, he who testifies to these things says, so he's speaking of Jesus, surely I am coming soon. So we might ask, well, how soon is soon? And I think we get a little bit of help from The Voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis. In a conversation between Lucy and Aslan, Aslan says to Lucy as they're saying their goodbyes, he says, Lucy, don't look so sad. We will meet soon again. And then Lucy responds, please, Aslan, what do you mean by soon? She wants to know the time. And Aslan replies, I call all times soon. The point there is that Jesus' return is imminent. And whether it's near or far, it's soon. And it's supposed to change and transform how we think about our lives. We have one life to live, and we're not to waste it. And so when Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, he takes that to say, now, all of these things that flow out as implications and exhortations from this one reality should transform the way that you live because you're eagerly expecting and anticipating Christ's return, are you not? And so, how will we think about the time that we have remaining? Will you just think about yourself? Are we tempted to withdraw from the church? Maybe as you've seen some of the unrest, you're thinking, maybe if I only I got sort of an off-the-grid, bunker-style place in South Dakota, you know, then we would be all set. And Peter's point is, in moments like this, it's time for the church to shine, to glorify Jesus when the world feels all that much darker. If the world is coming to an end, there would be a very real temptation to run away, but God's people are to faithfully live in community in order to shine forth the love of Christ. 
So there's four things that Peter says believers are to do in light of the end being near. The first is to think clearly. Now look with me at the second half of verse 7. It says, therefore, so here we get the inference that flows into these four things. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This exhortation is a call to right and clear-headed thinking in light of redemptive history. Be alert or be ready, be serious and watchful. Now, the use of sober-minded is indeed contrasted with drunkenness. Don't get drunk because that doles your mind and your senses. And so though you might be mumbling when you're drunk, you're definitely not praying. And so his point is don't get drunk. But it's more than that. He's calling for a certain level of sober-mindedness in thinking about the world in which they're living, even when things intensify. He talked about this in chapter 1, verse 13. Preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a way in which believers exercise their brain, their muscles of thinking, to set their hope on Jesus and his return. As we meditate and ponder Christ's imminent return, it transforms the way that we think about our money and our time and our energy, and our homes, and where we live. He even gives a kind of more sober illustration, or kind of uh, illustration in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, remember, who's writing this? This is Peter. He walked with Jesus. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And what did Jesus say to Peter to do when Jesus went a little distance to pray? He said, watch and pray. Stay awake, Peter, because this is a moment when you should be praying. And what did Peter and John and the disciples do? They slept. So Peter knows firsthand that when watchfulness is needed, There wasn't that level of sober-mindedness in that particular moment. So how does this watchfulness, the sober-mindedness, the self-control connect to prayer? I think we highlighted that very simply in the sense that if you're drunk, you're not praying. If you're not thinking rightly, your prayers are going to be hindered. But I think today the prevalent issue is probably not drunkenness. For, For some, that may be the case but it's technology, that it's the first thing, our phones are the first thing we pick up in the morning, the last things we touch at night. And our minds are distracted and drawn away with every ping, every notification, every app that's been designed by brilliant social scientists in order to take our attention. I think studies have shown we touch our phones more than 2,000 times a day and we glance at it again and again. And my guess is that technology is one of the things that erodes our prayer life. And Peter is giving a word, be self-controlled and sober-minded with everything in your life so that your prayers wouldn't be hindered, that we would engage in crying out, to the God of the universe. Because when things get tough, we could say, well, I'm just going to 
withdraw. Maybe I'll just drown myself, drown out my sorrows in alcohol. Maybe I'll just scan something mindless like Candy Crush. And instead, what Peter is saying is, no, in these moments, you have been given a glorious privilege to enter into the throne of grace and say, oh God, hallowed be your name. Cause your name to be hallowed here in the Twin Cities. Cause your name to be hallowed here in my life so that I would know you more and love you more and think more like you. Cause your name to be hallowed in my workplace. Cause your name to be hallowed in my extended family. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Oh God, would you save my neighbors that don't know you? Would you save my coworkers who don't know you? That we would, in these moments, not seek to drown out our sorrows, but we have a renewed zealousness in prayer as we go to God, knowing that we have all of his power and grace at our disposal. So he's calling for clear thinking, right thinking. It's a little bit like when you first started dating your spouse. For those of you who are married, what did you guys do? You talked all the time about the craziest stuff, stuff that was entirely meaningless. Um, Some of you still remember calling cards. You spent many a precious dollar talking to your soon-to-be spouse in those dating days. And what's very often is when you've been married for some time, you have to relearn how to talk to one another because you've fallen out of practice. It's a little bit like when Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus that they've abandoned, that, abandoned their first love. And for some of us this morning, we're being exhorted to recover our first love, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to go to him in prayer with a certain level of sober-mindedness. Now, Peter turns from clear thinking now to loving fervently. Look with me at verse 8. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So instead of being tempted to withdraw from the Christian community, he says, lean into the Christian community all the more, even so that you love one another, even when you get hurt. When you get sinned against, he wants believers to engage in loving each other. Now, what does it mean for love to cover a multitude of sins? Peter knows that only Jesus forgives sins, but he's quoting Proverbs ten twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And so when a Christian when a, or someone else sins against you, you have two options. You can either bring it to them, like Matthew 18, and bring it before them and say, you know, here's this issue that we have and and work that out and then to bring another if, if they don't respond. Or you can forgive them. You can overlook it. You can cover it over. So his point is not to cover up legitimate sins, but to cover over them by forgiving them so that they do not become the source of division and discord from within the body. It's stunning to think that the Bible assumes that as Christians in the body of Christ, we're going to sin against each other. I know that's surprising for some of us because we think we're all just good Christian people and we're always going to get along. But the Bible assumes that as we do enough community together, we're going to hurt each other. This is normal. And what's needed is not a church split, but rather love, a fervent, earnest love that covers 
over these sins so that it does not become a cancer that tears the church apart. Don't let minor disputes destroy the unity of God's people. It's often been said that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And what do sinners do? They sin and we sin against one another. Just this week, I shared with a friend that something they said was hurtful. And it would have been much easier to not admit that, that they hurt me, and just to say, well, I'm going to keep this person at an arm's length. I'll move them from maybe the first tier of friendship to the second tier. They're going to be, you know, a little bit further distanced from me. But that's not what we're called to. And so in God's grace, when I brought this to that person, God allowed us to reconcile so that I have a brother that I can trust and we can go even deeper because we know that at the end of the day, our hope is not in how I might hurt him or he might hurt me and we might be able to work those things through, but because our hope is ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ because we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That makes all the difference in a Christian community. And so I really want to draw out one particular thing. One of the things that we call all of our members to here in this church is to be engaged with one another in small groups. And I know that there's many who are still not engaged in small groups. And it may be because you've been hurt in community. You've been wrongly rebuked. You got judged for how you did, I don't know, whatever it is, your parenting. Maybe you felt uncared for. Maybe others didn't see your pain. And so what you want to do is to withdraw and keep other believers at an arm's length. I'll just come to church and then I'll keep everyone further away so that they can't hurt me. And yet that's not what Peter's calling believers to this morning. He's calling us to lean further into community so that we would be those who love one another with the earnest and fervent love, even when we sin against one another, and especially when we sin against one another, so that we would cover it over with love. That's how God builds the bonds of the church to be stronger and stronger. And my guess is that if our bonds are weak, it's because we've not exposed ourselves to a setting where we can actually get hurt by others so that we can be extending forgiveness and granted forgiveness. Now, Peter points out that this fervent love is to manifest itself in hospitality. Look with me at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So hospitality in Peter's day is probably very different than ours. There was no Hilton or Hyatt or Marriott hotels. Traveling itinerant preachers would need a place to stay and food to eat. And very often, hospitality is one of the ways to minister to strangers and foreigners and the poor and widows and orphans. And very often in the Greco-Roman world, churches would meet in homes, living rooms, And there would be a shared meal. So there would be inconvenience and cost and disruption by practicing hospitality. Our small group has 10 adults and 15 kids. So stuff breaks because we have a lot of kids. You know a little bit of what that's like if you've hosted a group. There's a cost that comes with hospitality. And yet, we'll see in the next section why we're to show this joyful hospitality without grumbling. 
but part of it is we're, we're stewards. We're managers. It doesn't belong to us. You can't bring your home to heaven. And so we're to use them right now to love others, to bless the church, to build up the body of Christ. I remember when I first moved to Minnesota, many, some of you may know this, we did not have a place to live for about a hundred days. And so we hopped from home to home to home to home. And most of the people that hosted us did not even really know us. And, and I heard no grumbling, at least not to my face, thankfully. And, and I don't care how good of house guests we might have been, Seven people is a chore. That, that takes some labor and effort to host seven people. And so I've been on the receiving end of this hospitality. And what Peter's calling for is for us to view our homes, and later he goes into our gifts and resources as belonging to God. And so in moments like this, when we're thinking more than ever about our personal physical safety, are my housing prices going to go down if a homeless encampment pops up next to my home? He says, still use your home to bless the Christian community because this is our distinctive trait. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another, John 13, 35. The world looks and Christians are supposed to look different in how we use our homes and resources and time and energy. And so this morning, who is perhaps an arm's length away that you can bless with your home? Perhaps foster care, bringing in children who have no place to go, who have no home. Perhaps a single that's between leases and they need a place to crash. Perhaps it's a family or couple facing layoff and financial uncertainty and you might open up your home for an indefinite period of time. Perhaps a single parent in need of help because they can't make ends meet. Perhaps it's walking alongside the children of working parents or coming alongside the elderly. What are the ways in which we are called as the church to come alongside one another in times such as this. How gracious and joyful is our hospitality. Now, Peter turns from love and hospitality to getting more specific of the varied gifts that we have in verses 10 and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, verse 10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Notice with me a number of these things that this passage makes explicit. All believers have received gifts, at least one. All believers are to use these gifts in service to one another. And all believers are stewards or managers of what God has entrusted to them. He gives two categories as a catch-all, speaking and serving. And all of these are to be done out of the resources and strength and power and enabling that God himself gives 
And so the picture is a flow of God has manifold or varied grace. And he wants the church to be blessed by that. And so he pours it out into each one of us. So every single believer here this morning has gifts to be used for the building up of the church, of fellow believers. And when we use those gifts, we bless others, and then God gets glory. Now, are we the bottleneck in that equation? Where we have been given gifts, but we're not putting them to use. Where they're not flowing out. It's terminating with us. These gifts aren't for our personal fulfillment or for boasting, but they're to be used, expended. And we don't have to worry about running out because God is the one who supplies this strength to give lavishly and graciously. Believers are to serve out of the strength that God supplies. It's not our own strength, but it's the strength that God himself gives to us. One of the challenges with reopening when we heard that the Minnesota Department of Health was allowing churches to reopen at 250 was there was all these new cleaning procedures that we hadn't yet ever done. And one of the big questions was, we have 1,200 chairs here in this room, and we're supposed to clean them after each service. So someone has to go and wipe the wooden backs of every single one of these chairs between services. And so we have volunteers who've stepped forward to say, I'll do that. I'll use my time and energy and gifts in order to wipe each and every single one of the backs of these chairs. Whoever thought to ever wipe the backs of chairs? They're clean, cleaner than they've ever been. You could eat off of them now. You could rub your face all over them. Please don't do that. But the, the point is, we need every single gift here in this body to be put at the disposal of building up this church. We need every single member to step forward, not so that you can say, I have this gift, I want to do that, as if it was for your personal fulfillment, but to say, what are the needs here in this body? How might I meet that need? How can I come alongside someone who's hurting, who's in need? How can I listen? How can I use the resources that I've been given to, to serve or to speak or to give? We've all been given gifts to put at the disposal of this body. And the aim of it all, it's glorious in this passage, that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is the entire aim of our lives, that whether we eat or whether we drink, that in all things, God would get glory for himself. And what Peter is saying here is that as we use the gifts that God's given us, as it flows through us into others, as we bless them with those gifts, God gets more glory for himself. This is precisely the way in which God has designed the body. Jesus could come down in the flesh right now and preach a much better sermon than the one I'm giving you. But he doesn't do that. He uses weak vessels, each and every single one of us, to fulfill his purposes. And that's how he designed this body, so that he would get glory. So that the best place to be is when we're expending ourselves, giving of our resources, welcoming people into our homes, speaking and serving out of the strength and grace that he supplies, so that God would get glory. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, how does that happen? 
when we serve each other. And yes, there's very specific ways we have opportunities. We need welcomers and people serving our children and and all of those things. But uh, my desire is not to fill a role, but to empower 1,500 people to think and pray to say, how might God be using me right now, today, to serve someone else? It could be right after the service, you come up to someone and say, how, how, how can I come alongside you? I've never seen you before. I met someone brand new at, at the 8 a.m. service. I know you're still watching. I haven't looked at the camera. Uh, we love you. Uh, and they said, they were in tears. And they said, we, we need people to walk with us. We're struggling. We're hurting. We, we want to know Jesus. And so who's going to walk with that couple? My guess is there are people like that here this morning. There's people like that watching from home. And you're saying, I, I'm, I'm hurting and I'm lonely. And not only do we need to reach out and let people know that, but I want to empower 1,500 people to say, how do we serve with the grace and the gifts that God has given us to build up and strengthen this body for the glory of Jesus? We want Jesus to get more glory. We want his glory to shine forth. We want his supremacy to be the most prominent thing in all of the world. And then Peter closes with a doxology word. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is closing a section that began at chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to 4.11. And is reminding us again that all glory and dominion is to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. It's not mainly to think about the sufferings coming, this maligning and slander. How do I protect myself? What kind of bubble wrap should I create around me? Should I run away into the bunker? or into the woods, or to South Dakota. But no, it's to say, lean into your church family and love one another in every moment, and especially in times of need. Let me end with this story. There was a French village in World War II that was completely bombed out. And as soldiers came through, and as they were beginning to rebuild, they began, the townspeople began with the church. And so as they began to kind of clear out the debris and fix the windows that had been blown out and repair the pews that had been scattered or burned. They came across the marble statue of Jesus. And so they tried to find all the pieces and cement the statue back together. But in the process, they could not find the hands. And so they put the statue back in its place. And then as a soldier saw it, he wrote a little note and put it down as a placard and said, he has no hands but yours. And the point of that story is to illustrate Jesus has hands. He's sitting at the throne of his father, but we are his hands and feet here on earth now. We have the glorious opportunity to be his hands, his feet, his mouth in order to speak words of life, to serve one another with the grace that he gives, to walk with one another out of the strength that he supplies. We have been given a multifaceted grace that Jesus pours out in unlimited measure so that we would continue to use it and expend ourselves for the building up of this body. 
And so one of the glorious truths that's been throughout this book of 1 Peter is the priesthood of all believers. Every single member is needed. And you have a role and a job in this body to build up one another. Not to withdraw, not to run away, not to conform. But rather, we live in light of the very end. Jesus is coming back. His kingdom is inaugurated. It will be consummated. We will be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance. This is why Peter began this way. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We've been born again to a living hope. So we don't worry about what the future holds because we know the end of the story. We know how God reconciles all things, how we will be with him forever. And we can't bring our money. We can't bring our homes. We can't bring our time and energy into heaven. And so we're to use them right now to serve one another here in this body so that in all things, Jesus himself would get glory and honor and praise. And so that the watching world would see the distinctiveness, not just of Christians, but mainly of Christ. And they would say, I want that Jesus. I want what you have. I want Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want thousand, fifteen hundred people, both here in the overflow and at home, to be empowered with your lavish grace and gifts to serve in a million different ways. And we pray that as that takes place, oh, that a watching world would see the power of Christ, the beauty of the body of Christ, and that they would say, I want Jesus. And in it all, that Christ would get glory for himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.